to really connect with another culture, have you considered signing up for a language class when you go on vacation? If you're really serious about learning a language, your location is incredibly important, and being in those smaller towns is really going to make you put yourself out there a bit more. Coming up, Carrie Walker tells us how she learned the fine points of La Dolce Vita in Tuscany. When David Lida left his home in New York to visit Mexico City, he really liked what he saw. There was something about it that just on a visceral level really got to me, and I thought, I could live here, and if it doesn't work out, I could go back in six months. Well, I'm still there. He takes us to Mexico City for expats. Guidebook author Taj Bates knows you only live once. She recommends some only-in-L.A. fun for when things eventually reopen. Or wear your mask and hike up to the famous Hollywood sign. You're killing two birds with one stone. You're hiking and seeing the beautiful views of L.A., and you're seeing one of the most iconic signs in the world. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. A hometown guide to the fun things Millennial Angelinos recommend and are eager to get back to in Southern California. And why Mexico City offers everything a former New Yorker could want in a place to call home. That's coming up this hour on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. Let's start with a look at how you can amplify an overseas vacation by signing up for language lessons. Tour guide Kerry Walker is an American language buff. She's worked on her language skills in Central America and was immersing herself in Italian lessons when we last checked in with her. Kerry, where have you gone in Italy to study the language? So I started off in a school at Montepulciano. There was a school in town, so I did that for about a week, which was a great start, but then I left. I really needed more, so I quickly learned that private lessons for me were the way to go really get the most bang for my buck. So my last two studies have been in-home stays with my teacher. So private is better than group for you. For me. But is it more expensive because it's one-on-one? It is more expensive, but my goal is to really learn the language. And Mm -hmm. in order to do that, I realized that I really need that one-on-one, which is focused exactly on where I am, where my misconceptions are, the things that I want to fine-tune, and also the the places that I want to go. My teacher can take me there much more quickly. Mm -hmm. They can tailor the teaching to your needs and your interests. You know, all over the world, there's a lot of people earning their living just by teaching English as a second language. Is it, can you flip-flop it? Are there a lot of people in Italy that earn their living or supplement their income by teaching foreigners Italian? Without question. It's a big business. And how do you learn about that? You know, there's a lot of different ways. Unfortunately, there's not one place to go to. I really do it a lot of different ways. I I think friends of friends, just asking people, where did you study? So Mm -hmm. I got my last home state through my Italian tutor back home, had another student that I spoke to. Uh, So I think really getting those references from Uh other people and just also some research. There's a lot of people now that have contacts with teachers all over Italy. And then you move in and you just, how many hours a day or a week are you working? So I did, I did about four to six hours a day, but I, I ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner with that family. Our table was al fresco. So my classroom was in Tuscany, al fresco, outside so every day. So you were day. just living it. I was. I was. All those things that I needed to learn, my teacher was right there. So, so it's, a, it's a lot of work. I, I've never bothered. I, I have a great time in Italy. Why would you spend all the time and money learning the language? I love connecting with the culture. I mean, I think... Just to be able to move in and really, not only did I learn the language, I learned the culture. I sat at that table every day. And for me, that makes travel so much more real. So that is it. If the bottom line, the bottom line is not speaking the language, but it's connecting with the culture. Without question. And with the language, it's like you've got better vision. Exactly. You've done this also in Costa Rica and Nicaragua. Those are two different Spanish-speaking countries. How does your choice of a destination impact the learning that you have and, and what you come away with? Because Costa Rica and Nicaragua, you went to both of them and, and you were trying to learn Spanish. Uh, 
why would you go to one rather than the other? For me, it was based on what I wanted to see as well. I had some travel goals, too. So for many people, I think it's often going to depend on what part of the world you want to see. Uh-huh. So oftentimes that's the case. Also, you have to think about what kind of language you want to come away with. If you went of to course. Quebec to learn French and then you go to France, they're going to look at you like, where are you from? Exactly. So that's one of the reasons I chose not to study in Sicily. Obviously, you're Naples. I wanted, to, for me... Because <laughs> you don't want to go around the world speaking like exactly. a Sicilian. Exactly. So, right? And I know that in Tuscany, the kind of Italian that I want to come away with is what they're speaking there. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Kerry Walker about learning languages as part of your travel experience. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Diane's calling from New York City. Hi, Diane. Hi, guys. How are you? We're doing good. Great. Have you ever thought about learning a language abroad? I did, but you know what? I'm 57. I'm wondering whether or not I'm too old to actually pick up a new language. You're just a kid. thanks. (laughs) No, that's a good question because I know kids can go over there and they absorb it. It's just like you're there, you learn it, and you play with your friends, and suddenly you're bilingual. Mm -hmm. Older people, it's a little tougher. Carrie, what's your thoughts on that? I think this is the perfect time to start. Why not? What a great way to sort of immerse yourself in the culture. Maybe now you have the time. So I think you're never too old to learn a language. I think this is now's the time. I think you really need to think about your goals starting out, uh, what you want to come away with. And one thing, Diane, I think Carrie's getting at is your goal may be a travel goal. Maybe you, you really want to learn about Mexican culture and you're going to go down to the colonial circle and settle into, you know, San Miguel Allende and hire somebody to tutor you privately. And you're going to learn a lot about Mexico as well as picking up some Spanish. So, Diane, where are your travel dreams taking you? You know what? My travel dreams in my head is taking me to France. And it's taking me to tours, which I understand has some of the most purest form of French. So I said, why not go there? So Tours is a, is a city on the Loire Valley, T-O-U-R-S, and that would be known in France for having the sort of the French language that is the venerable French, maybe the, the classic French. That's probably a good idea if you're thinking about learning the language to learn the, the basic language. What are your thoughts on that, Carrie? I also wondered, are you interested as much in the language or also are, there, are you wanting to do some sightseeing as well? Is that a region you're interested well, in visiting? Of course. You know, the goal is to actually have a twofold approach to learn the language, but to also take on the area. And I figure if I stay out of Paris, I might have a chance. This is a good point because um, Carrie has studied in four different places in Italy, and I would imagine you've got to choose one of the fundamental determining factors is do you want to go to a touristy area, Multipulciano, mm-hmm. or do you want to go to a place that has no tourism, like some of the other places that I didn't even recognize? Exactly. It is a different experience, and you might be more immersed in the culture and the language if you go where there are no tourists. Most definitely. And, and Diane, it also forces you to speak the language, like you said. And I think that's, you know, if you're really serious about learning a language, your location is incredibly important. And being in those smaller towns is really going to make you put yourself out there a bit more. Excellent. Hey, Diane, have a bon chance, I think we would say. Good luck. Oh, thanks so much. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Diane. Thanks See for you the later, call. guys. Bye now. Stephanie's calling from Boston. Hi, Stephanie. Thanks for your call. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I was wondering, there are places you hear about where adults can learn And I was wondering, is there any place you can suggest that adults and children can learn? So if a family wants to go, the adults can learn on one level, and the kids can learn something also. (laughs) And I bet the kids might progress fast enough to be the adult tutors after a few days. (laughs) I bet you're right, yes. Any suggestions? You know, I'm wondering, one of the things I've done most recently is actually doing some homestay. So I'm actually living with my tutors in their home. And obviously, my my learning is much more 
catered to my needs. But I wonder if you could do that as a family, if your family could actually live with someone else, let's say in their home, maybe they have kids as well, uh, people around the same age as your own children, and then you could tailor your learning uh, to the needs of your family together. Oh, I love that idea. That's fantastic. You've planned my next trip. Fantastic. And I think you've got to decide to what degree are you going to enforce the idea that we only speak Spanish when we're together. Uh, you know, that's a, a challenge a lot of families have. Most definitely. But when you have, if you're living in a home and the children are, are not speaking English, I love living in homes. I must always make sure there's children present because mm-hmm. they're speaking my sort of language, my, yeah. my level. And I find myself being much more likely to interact with them because those mistakes I'm making, they're teaching me. And, and there's something. It, it's a blessing that. for the family to have a, a, a guest from another country there with the kids so mm-hmm. they understand more about the world. Stephanie, what language are you uh, dreaming of learning? Italian. We're going to Italy. <laughs> Carrie, um, that's we, that's I've Carrie's got a great interest also. For you, yes. <laughs> so you can uh, again. What are some good uh, resources for people who are looking for tutors and so on? You know, I think uh, there's a lot of different ways to do that. I think going to places like TripAdvisor, things like that, talking to other friends of friends. But when you're looking for private tutors, really just going online and finding those different resources. Because it is a source of income in small towns exactly. where people are looking for work, and they may speak English wonderfully from their school, and they got a nice degree, but it's just tough to get work, and you can help them out. One other thing I would say was ask for references. Ask for these people to, to talk to you about other students, and you just totally want to ask those questions. You know, you know what, were, what are their teaching techniques, and did you really feel like you learned a lot? Questions like that. I think it's really important not just to go the, with the first thing that comes up, but mm-hmm. you're, you're investing a lot of time and a lot of money into this process. You want to make sure you're really getting uh, what's going to meet the needs of your needs and your family's needs. Stephanie, call us back after you can speak Italian, okay? <laughs> okay. okay. Arrivederci. Uh, ciao, 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 ciao. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Kerry Walker about traveling and learning the language at the same time. Kerry, uh, very briefly, do you prepare before? Is it good to take a, a foreign language class at the local community college before you head out? And then once you get to your destination, what's the optimal amount of time? Because people have limited time. How much do you need to make it worthwhile after all? And then when you get home, how do you keep that language learning alive? It's good to have a base, obviously, something to start out with. So I think the more that you can put into that... Uh, the better, most definitely. Ahead of time. Ahead of so time. The, the bigger jump you get on it. So taking a class here before going there will let you learn more once you get right. there. And I think just being really clear with your teacher prior to signing up, and mm-hmm. then once you arrive where you are, you know, it takes a couple of days to get to know your teacher. It's sort of like dating, right? So mm-hmm. really get, making sure you know where you are, where your misconceptions are, and then where you want to go. How long should you spend in that destination? No, I've, Rick, I've tried a lot of different ways. For me, really, I think one week is a waste of time and money. By the time mm-hmm. you and your teacher are at a place of where you really know where each other, you're leaving. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for me, two and really three weeks is optimal. So choose a place you want to be for three weeks. Exactly. And, and that's, that's why the research is important. That's good. And then once you get home, you've learned this. How do you not let it all just fade away? That is the never-ending question for me. I have, a, I have a tutor back home. So I have a tutor that I'm meeting with every every week. There's so many resources in, online. Conversation groups and so on. Of course. But also, you can have. I can have a tutor in Italy. Skype. I can. There's oh, so many right. different resources now where I can literally have, and I've done it many times, where I have a tutor that lives in Tuscany that I'm meeting with You could with carry Skype. on. Let's of say course. You, let's say you fall in uh, language teaching love with your tutor in some faraway land. You can Skype an hour a week for the rest of time. That is actually, uh, financially, it's not very expensive at all. It's Okay. Fantastic. Now, this is a travel show, and you've spent a lot of time and money learning these languages. How does it actually impact your travels? Tell us just, we'll finish this conversation with a, a couple of actual advantages because you spoke the language, you had a better experience. 
Right. Well, let me tell you about a couple of my different families that I lived with. But I think for me, it's the culture. You know, I, I always see the culture from the outside, but to actually live with the people in their homes brings it to life. And in Montepulciano, Fiorella was my Italian mother. And she would go into the forest every day and pick uh, mushrooms. So every day she would go and pick the mushrooms uh, from the forest, the fungi, and come back. And we would make these amazing meals. And my last night there, we actually made pasta together. Oh, Where else could I do that? That is beautiful. My last family that I lived with, they were picking, the, it was in October, so the olives were just coming off the trees. So my teacher, her neighbor down the street, was literally picking the olives off the trees, and they were making the olive oil and right on site. And, I, and you're right there. I'm They're, right there. The, the olives are raining down on the, literally. On, the on the blanket, and you're picking them up, she's, and you're, ta- you're learning your vocabulary. She's been an hour vocabulary. with me. So I, she's <laughs> been an hour with me, you know, in Italian, talking about the experience. And then we went to the olive factory where the olives were being pressed, and I got to see it right there. But uh-huh. it was fantastic. And it's joyful for the people who are sharing their culture with an American who has a genuine curiosity about what they're doing and what their grandparents did on that very same beautiful piece of land. Most definitely. Kerry Walker, thanks so much. And um, I wish I could say in five different languages, <laughs> bon voyage and happy travels. Thank you, Rick. Mamma mia. Kerry recommends useful phrases for travelers while out for an evening stroll or shopping in Italy in an extra to this week's show. You'll find it at ricksteves.com slash radio. A YOLO guide to Los Angeles provides fun things to do at any age in Southern California. We'll use it to get ready for the great reopening, whenever that'll be, in just a bit. But first, former New Yorker David Lita tells us why he's made Mexico City his home for the past 25 years. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, you can savor Europe's most exciting experiences and sights through a hundred of my favorite travel stories. Imagine hanging from an alpine ridge, dancing at a Turkish circumcision party, and swinging with a bell ringer in a medieval church spire. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com. It's been called one of the world's greatest and, at the same time, most misunderstood cities. With more than 21 million people living in and around Mexico City in the Distrito Federal, it edges out the tri-state area around New York City as the largest metro area in the Americas. David Lida knows both cities well. As a native New Yorker, the first time he visited Mexico City back in 1990, he knew it's where he wanted to stay. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to share what it's like for him to divide his time between the U.S. and living as an expat in the Mexican capital. David, welcome. Thanks for inviting me, Rick. It's a pleasure to be here. So I understand that you grew up in, or you spent years in New York City. You're a New Yorker. You went down to Mexico City and you ended up just staying. You've been there for 20, more than 25 years. How do you compare sort of the tempo of life and the personality of of the two cities? Because they're both great metropolises, Mexico City and New York City. Well, they're both big cities, so I think it was the adaptation wasn't as difficult as it might have been if I'd gone to live in a smaller place. But I think that as big and impossibly uh, extended as Mexico City is, there's a kind of courtliness that I would associate with small towns. I, what I'm getting at is that people hold doors open for each other. People, If you get on an elevator in the morning, people say good morning to you. If you're in a restaurant, the people at the next table will say buen provecho, which is bon appetit in Spanish, hmm. when your food comes. I and mean, people are just a, a little more considerate of each other. And there are a lot of neighborhoods 
where the streets are tree-lined and, and there's, it feels a little bit like being in a small city or even a small town in these neighborhoods. Mm. It's not like, you know, walking down Wall Street or Fifth Avenue or something in the middle of the day with hordes of crowds that are, have to get where they're going no matter what. One of the most vivid images I think I've ever seen is flying into Mexico City at night. You got this megapolis yeah. of, what, 20 million people. The the lights go forever. It's just blanketing the the high plane. And when you land, you do have that amazing collection of villages. Yes. Mexico City, uh, architects call it short and fat because there aren't that many high-rise buildings. It's a very spread-out city like Los Angeles, but it isn't a, a vertical city like, like New York. There aren't that many skyscrapers. Hmm. Now, you, you've lived there for over 25 years. A lot of Americans yes. dream of retiring in Mexico. Your, your retirement uh, pension goes a lot farther. Uh, the default, it seems to me, is the colonial circle. Don't most people just, like, go to San Miguel Allende? Uh, you know, I think there are Americans in a lot of different places in Mexico, but I don't think there are that many retirees in Mexico City. In the last few years, I've seen more and more Americans come to live there, but they tend to be younger people, people in their 30s. But oh, okay. the retirees like San Miguel, they like Lake Chapala, they like beach villages. They like places, I think, that have a slower pace. Now, that explains it, because I was just trying to think of... Because my idea of an American retiring is a, is an older American that, that just wants a nice mojito, you know? And uh, Mexico yeah. City is more where you're still doing stuff. You're engaged. You're, yes. You're in a big, uh, high-energy city, really, but it's a Mexican city. I see more and more Americans, though, living in Mexico City. And not only Americans, but Europeans... And South Americans, there's something that's become very attractive to people in the last few years from other countries about Mexico City. Now, do all of you first-worlders hang out in little bastions of cosmopolitan privilege? Yes, I would <laughs> have to say. It's not, I mean, the neighborhoods where foreigners tend to hang out are certain neighborhoods, the Colonia Condesa, the Colonia Roma, Polanco. Uh, uh, they're not where most struggling Mexicans in Mexico City live. Although we might go and hang out there, like to go to a cantina or to go shopping mm -hmm. or to go on certain errands, but most foreigners do not live in those areas. They live in more privileged as areas. As an expat, as an American or European in Mexico City, you're probably seeing a lot of each other, and you're probably in a neighborhood where there's a Starbucks within walking distance. That's right. <laughs> you put the nail on the head there. Um, you know, sometimes I walk down, I've lived in Colonia Condesa for many, many years on the border with the Colonia Roma. And these are two areas where you do hear and see more and more foreigners. Sometimes I feel like I hear more English on the street hmm. than Spanish. Hmm. And this is just the last couple of years. And I say to myself, there goes the neighborhood. But, you know, of course, I can't really criticize. I, that's what I did all those years ago. I, I love Mexico City and see what the benefits are of living there, so I can't fault others for doing it. But it does seem very pronounced. I, about two or three years ago, the New York Times put Mexico City at the top of its 52 places to visit this year in the travel section. Hmm. And since then, I think that really began to make a significant change for people's perception of Mexico City. I've seen all these positive articles on websites, in travel magazines, in different media, and I think it's becoming part of the hipster, cool map, and more and more people are seeing its benefits. Oh, we, we celebrated New Year's there just uh, three or four years ago. As you know, we had we had lunch with you, and it was just really yeah. 
my friend said, what, Mexico City for New Year's Eve? It was great. And I, I frankly don't know why more people don't just buzz on down. It's a direct flight from many, many places in the United States. And I yeah. originally thought, oh, man, uh, you know, Phoenix is so hot. I don't want to go hundreds of miles south of that. But it's not really a, an issue of you go further south and it gets hotter, is it? No, Mexico City has a very high altitude. And it's a temperate climate. It's never very cold or very hot during the year. I feel very spoiled and privileged by that climate because, you know, sometimes with my work, I have to travel to very cold or very hot places. And suddenly it's like, wow, how do people <laughs> live in this? But Mexico City, to me, you know, you saw it. I feel like culturally, it's one of the world's most important cities. I don't know if this is true because I haven't found the data to back it up. But I read that Mexico City has more museums than any other city in the world, hmm. including London, Paris, New York. And bars, restaurants, the food is great there. Plus, it's accessible because it's less expensive. That's right. I mean, these days, the peso, like a lot of currencies, has taken a big beating against mm -hmm. the dollar. So, I mean, obviously, you can eat tacos on the street for nearly nothing, but you can also sit in really fancy restaurants and pay a fraction of what you pay in New York or Paris or London. American David Lita is telling us why Mexico City's been his home for three decades right now on Travel with Rick Steves. David's written a novel called One Life, based on the legal mitigation work he does on both sides of the border. One Life depicts the difficult circumstances undocumented Mexicans might find in the U.S. and the poverty their families face back home. David also offers custom tours of Mexico City. And he provides a street-level view of what he calls its constant state of combustible reinvention in his book. It's called First Stop in the New World. His website is davidlida.com. That's spelled L-I-D-A. David, when we're thinking about living as an expat in Mexico City, uh, you and your friends have had to deal with frustrations, corruption, uh, just the reality of living in a country south of the border. What are some of those challenges that we should be mindful of and honest about? Well, I wonder if dealing with bureaucracy and corruption in Mexico is worse. I'm sure it's worse than in a lot of other countries, but not as bad as in some other. I mean, dealing with bureaucracy is very daunting there. But I don't know if it's worse than dealing with the Department of Motor Vehicles or the Police Department in New York City. You know, I can tell you that working as a freelance in Mexico, uh, writing for magazines and newspapers, sometimes it's been incredibly frustrating trying to get paid. I I've sometimes mm. felt that if I don't go after my money with a baseball bat, uh, mm. I might never get it. But having said that, you know, that can happen in the United States, too. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not only Mexico where things like that happen. But there is an accepted culture of corruption typified by, you know, uh, cops stopping drivers and, you know, accusing them of a traffic infraction in the hope of getting a bribe. I mean, that happens every day. But um, Are you more you know, likely I, to be stopped? Is it kind of like um, driving while rich and white? You know what, Rick? I've never had a car in Mexico City. I don't want the headache of driving in that traffic. I either take the metro, the subway, or mm -hmm. I take a taxi. And I feel like whatever I spend in taxis, I'm saving in stress. Mm -hmm. I just don't want to be stuck in traffic jams. I can't stand that. And I feel like my life is easier in a lot of ways by not having a car. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with David Lida about life as an expat in Mexico City. David, you went down there intending to visit, and you ended up staying. Can you 
remember exactly the sort of thought process? What was it that just blew you away? You know, Rick, I was, although I was born and raised in New York, unlike a lot of people from the Big Apple, I I never was convinced that it was the be-all, end-all of the universe. And I dreamed of living in another country since adolescence. And when I got to Mexico City, I thought you know, there was something about it that just on a visceral level really got to me. And I thought, I could live here. And if mm. it doesn't work out, I could go back in six months. Mm. Well, I'm still there. You know, my son just did that in Medellin and Colombia. He just bought a condo in Medellin and Colombia, and his attitude is the same way. He doesn't know for sure, but he's just enamored with this society, and he can always move back, But uh, and you're speaking 25 years later. Parenthetically, I was in. I had. I spent a long weekend last year in Medellin, and I loved it too. I thought it was a fantastic city. I, mm. I second your 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 son's uh, <laughs> strong feelings about that city. So, how have you changed in twenty five years of living in Mexico City? Have your tastes changed? Has it changed your you know your tempo of life or your values? I th- I like to think that I'm more patient and that I'm more uh, empathetic. I think living in another culture having to understand the way people from a different country think and act, mm-hmm. in the best of cases, inspires patience, inspires understanding, inspires compassion. Flexibility. And so I hope that's happened. And yeah, I mean, here's another thing, Rick. Like, I am American. I identify as American. I, that's the country where I was born, where I was issued my passport. But I don't have very long roots in the United States. My mother was a refugee from World War II. My father was first generation. So it's not like I feel, you know, I, my ancestors did not come over on the Mayflower. Mm-hmm. So I feel Maybe it's a very... stepping stone. America could be a stepping stone in the story of your, your lineage. And I think for some people it is. I think, mm-hmm. I think for some people it is precisely that. Now, you've been there for 25 years, and I've noticed all over the world there's a rising affluence. You still have the character. You still have the colorful markets and the merchants, you know, barking out their sales pitches and the, you know, rustic little cantinas. How are things changing with greater affluence? Is it threatening the character of the little rustic neighborhoods? Is it making better food accessible if you've got the money? What trends do you see that way? Okay, first of all, uh, those figures are misleading in the sense that there are about the same... Ever since I got to Mexico, roughly 50% of the population has lived at or below the poverty level. Hmm. That has not changed. Mm -hmm. The rich have gotten richer, however. Hmm. So there might be a greater middle class, which uh, is translated in more people going to Starbucks, more people going to Walmart. Walmart is the single greatest private sector employer in Mexico. Hmm. And, so and that would be a, people, a, a symptom of the middle class, not the poor 50%. Exactly. So, you know, yes, you can still go to those same markets and eat food on the street and these marvelous street stalls. And I think things have changed at the higher end rather than at the right. lower end. So you can go to a boutique little uh, bed and breakfast and you can eat a, a, at a gourmet uh, creative little restaurant that you might not have had an option to years ago. That's right. Certainly in Mexico City. Mexico City has become, in the years I've spent there, a much more international city in terms of restaurants. Mm -hmm. I mean, now I live in walking distance from the Koreatown on the fringes of the Sonarosa. And I can tell you, because I've been to Korea 
the food is authentic. Mm -hmm. It tastes like what I ate in Korea. It's very good. And there's other Asians living in Mexico. There's, you know, lots of European restaurants and uh, so Thai restaurants. So cosmopolitan sort of thing, which globalization, it's happening, happening everywhere, really. How has the Trump era impacted your life as an expat in Mexico City? What's the reception for Americans? So far, I haven't had uh, any issues. I mean, people have asked me, you know, what is Trump's problem? Why does he hate us? What is going on in the United States? Because there are a lot of Mexicans are surprised or flummoxed by him. But luckily, I haven't felt any personal animus against me. Although I will tell you something, an incident happened to a friend of mine, an American woman. She went to buy something at a market and the woman didn't want to sell her what she was trying to buy. And she doubled the price. Hmm. And then my friend gave her double the money and the woman tore the money up and threw it in her face. And she believes that it was because she speaks Spanish with an American accent. I don't know if that's the case. I, you know, I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, but I cannot say that anything even remotely has happened to me. Mm-hmm. And most of my friends who are American in Mexico City seem to have a very jolly time there and, and get treated quite well by the local populace. This is Travel Trick Steve's. We've been talking with David Lida. And David's an expat. He's a writer. He's written a, a fascinating novel called One Life. His website is davidlida.com. David, let's finish our discussion. Just uh, imagine you have a guest dropping by. I imagine you do from the United States. And you want to just take him for a walk in your neighborhood, not to see a great museum, but some intimate little delight that is important to you as, a, as an expat. Where would you take me and, and what would we do? You know, it's funny. When I take people downtown, there's a street that I walk down because it's not like on any of the tourist maps, but it's a street that's just really lively. They've got bars and cantinas and this row of shops that sell live chicken, not live chickens, but freshly killed chickens. And then in the next block, stores that sell pots and pans and coffee makers. And and then there's a little store that sells, okay, people sell on the street in Mexico City these little bags of cheese doodles and corn chips. And so there's this little store that has huge, enormous bags where the people who sell the little bags buy them in bulk. And the bags are so enormous. It's like you can imagine getting asphyxiated or committing suicide by eating cheese doodles by (laughs) by looking at these. And I like to take people down the street because there's just so much to see that isn't really on the tourist path or the tourist map. But it's just kind of a fun street to walk on. And, you know, between getting out of the subway and ending up at the Palace of Fine Arts, you know, it's maybe a seven-block walk. But on those seven blocks, there's so much to see. People selling things on the street, cheap sunglasses and headphones. Do they still have the entertainment, the little birds pulling out the cards and stuff like that? Uh, not so much the birds pulling out the cars, but there are street musicians and there are, uh, you know, people shining shoes on the street and people selling lots of stuff on the street. Wow. That's, you that got, won't go away. You got me so um, fascinated by that. What is the subway stop and, and it, what's the street? Where would we walk? The subway stop is Salto del Agua uh-huh. and the street that I take people down is uh, Calle Lopez. Calle Lopez. And if yeah, I drop in, you'll the, take me there? You bet. You got it. (laughs) All right. David Lita, thank you so much, and best wishes with your life in Mexico City. Thank you for having me on the show, Rick. It really was a pleasure, as always.
todo lo que compartas Viene a lo bueno, viene al batidillo Todo lo que te guardas Queda en el aire, queda sumergido Esto existe muy cerca Planta tu paso, date media vuelta Solo voltea y deja You can listen to an earlier interview we had with David about his work with undocumented Mexicans facing the death penalty in the United States. That work is the basis for his novel, One Life. Look in our archives at ricksteves.com radio for program number 498. That's from September 2017. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. As next, we explore Los Angeles and the fun things you can do when Southern California reopens again. America's second largest metropolis is home to one of the most creative collections of people anywhere. Los Angeles has a reputation for world cuisine, innovative museums and architecture, as well as entertainment. Taj Bates has written The YOLO Guide to Los Angeles and Southern California. She wrote it to highlight the places and experiences in L.A. that you can expect to enjoy again when it gets back to its own version of normal. Our conversation with Taj was recorded before the COVID pandemic. Thanks for having me. You know, reading through your book, it's, it's just light and breezy and fun, and it seems like that's how a visit to Los Angeles should be. Why did you write this book, and uh, what did you figure that, that you could offer that wasn't offered elsewhere? Yeah, so I love travel, period. Um, My friends always ask me, like, where are you going next? And my motto was to look at California and Los Angeles through the lens of someone who's traveled to other places. Mm -hmm. So to say, what are the things about L.A.? that makes it so unique in relation to other places you can go and things you can experience around the world. And um, in order to kind of get to that point, I did a lot of research, a lot of historical research, that even as someone who'd lived in California and in LA for a good number of years, I was incredibly inspired Mm -hmm. to go and see places that as a local, you kind of avoid. (laughs) You're like, I'm not going there because of traffic and tourists and whatever. Now I go with a different point of view. And I wanted to put that into the guide so that people who, whether you're pre-planned or you just got here and you don't know what to do, can have a great time when you're here. I think that's always very good itinerary philosophy is Mm -hmm. what is unique about this destination? You know, if you've seen a great dinosaur pit somewhere else, you don't want to do it here. If you've seen uh, a a wonderful Gothic church there and and this has Art Nouveau uh, architecture, you'd want to go to the Art Nouveau instead of the Gothic Mm -hmm. uh, and Mm -hmm. so on. What are a couple of things that really are special about Los Angeles? Well, of course, you know, the obvious one is Hollywood. And the funny thing is Hollywood has spread a lot of American ideals and situations around the world. And so people have an idea of what L.A. is or they have an idea of what Hollywood is. But Hollywood is still it's kind of where the film industry really took flight Mm -hmm. and went global. And it's still where, you know, a lot of major film decisions are made and where people come from all over the world to, quote unquote, make it in different capacities. Mm -hmm. But one really interesting thing to do in L.A. that you really can't do anywhere else is to see a live sitcom taping. And the interesting thing is that sitcoms, they actually kind of originated in New York, but the idea of a sitcom being taped before a live studio audience, that began here in L.A., And it began with someone we all know, Lucille Ball, Mm -hmm. who was a film actress, and she was transferring from film to TV. 
And she also was about to enter into motherhood. So she made a lot of different demands of how she wanted to do I Love Lucy. And, you know, those demands have shaped the way that three camera sitcoms are taped even today. And so they're still taped before a live studio audience. Mm -hmm. They're still taped on three camera situations. so You can get reaction shots to different actors. A lot of times people make the mistake and they come to L.A. and they're like, oh, I'm going to do like a celebrity, you know, bus tour where really all you're doing is looking at the outside of houses and bushes and stuff <laughs> while on the flip and you pay for that. But instead, you can do something really unique to L.A. that's, you know, historical and linked to Lucille Ball and the film industry and go to a free live sitcom taping and see, you know, your favorite sitcom here in L.A. So that's an example of like one thing that's really unique here. And it seems to me the uh, the entertainment industry, the, the TV industry welcomes uh, visitors in so many ways. Of course, you can tour the mm -hmm. studios. You can go mm -hmm. to a, a talk show yep. to attend it. How would it go into a, a sitcom taping be different than just going to a talk show? Definitely. The cool part about going to a sitcom taping is, and this goes back to Lucille Ball, she insisted on having a live studio audience, which was comprised of 300 people during the first show taping. And that's still kind of like the formula today. And you'll notice during the taping that they don't just tape it straight through. They might do a particular, a certain number of pages. And depending on the audience's reaction to it, the writers might be rewriting a certain phrase or part of the scene on the fly. And see, you are participating via your yeah. laughter or lack thereof in the actual creation of the show, which is kind of cool. So they don't tell you when to laugh. You actually laugh when you think it's funny. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's good to know. And um, give me just a couple of practical tips. If, if you're going to one of these live tapings, uh, it probably takes a little more time than you might anticipate. Definitely. A live taping probably is going to take about three to five, depending on, you know, the taping mm -hmm. hours of your day. And it includes standing in line beforehand. You need to get tickets for free and you get the tickets beforehand. There's no guaranteed seating. So you have to arrive before, you know, early enough to get in mm -hmm. line. So it's a whole thing. But on one hand, it's free. On the other hand, you really can't get in anywhere else in the world. And I mm -hmm. will say I've, done, I've been to a couple of them. I've taken friends and family. And it is a very unique experience that you can have when you come here to L.A. Fascinating. And to take a little bit beyond that, tell just a couple of tips about if you want to go to a talk show and if you mm -hmm. want to tour some studios. Sure. So talk shows are pretty much the same type of formula. They're free. You get tickets beforehand. Uh -huh. And then in terms of studio tours, my favorite is actually an untraditional one. It's actually Universal Studios. Um, and the interesting thing is I found out in my research that that is where the first studio tour happened back mm -hmm. during the silent movie era. Mm. And then they brought it back in the 1960s when Universal was still just a studio. And because that studio tour became so popular and they kept adding different effects and attractions, that gave birth to the whole Universal Studios theme park. Ah. So, yeah. And so nowadays their most popular attraction at the theme park is still that studio tour. And when we go to L.A., we are tourists, and we want to go down what, what you'd call maybe Cinema Lane. Can you just mm -hmm. give us a little quick rundown on this pilgrimage down Cinema Lane? What are we going to see? So um, one would be, of course, the Hollywood sign. The great thing about the Hollywood sign is it really does inspire actors and producers and people who are trying to make it in this town. 
a little random fun fact about the Hollywood sign is that um, it wasn't always uh, honored and someone had to kind of save the sign twice in history and that person amazingly enough was Hugh Hefner. He mm. had a great love for the Hollywood sign and on two occasions he raised money to preserve it. Mm. Um, so that's one thing and the cool thing is you can actually hike to the back of the Hollywood sign which is a great, you're killing two birds with one stone. You're hiking and seeing the beautiful views of LA and you're seeing one of the most iconic signs in the world. But it is fenced in and guarded, right? So you're not going to be able to yes. sit on the letters and get no. No, and you something. don't. It's not only fenced in and guarded. It's like police activity, helicopters. Don't even try it. <laughs> Is that right? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Californian and world traveler Taj Bates is with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She's the author of the YOLO Guide to her hometown of Los Angeles in Southern California. She also hosts the YOLO Guide to Travel podcast. Her website is theyologuide.com. And YOLO stands for You Only Live Once. Hey, Taj, when you were researching this book, you live in Los Angeles, but what did you discover that you wouldn't appreciate otherwise? What was the most fun and and eye-opening part of your research? There were a lot, but I think the biggest one is in downtown L.A., there's the Walt Disney Concert Hall. Uh And I passed by that so many times and never went. I was like, I'll go one day, Eh, whatever, one day. But then I did my research and found out that a lot of people, they look at the Walt Disney Concert Hall, it's like, oh, it's about that fascinating architecture on the outside. But the reality is that the most fascinating part of the hall is actually the inside, because it is one of the best places to listen to music in the world. Frank Gehry, the architect behind it, he specifically focused on getting as great an acoustical sound as he possibly could in that inner concert hall. And so once I found that out, literally within a couple of weeks, I was there listening to a concert. Going to an actual concert. When you take a tour, is that do they give you a guided tour that explains to you how thoughtful the interior is? They do, but honestly, nothing compares to hearing it live. And the great thing is, you know, you hear the L.A. Philharmonic, Mm -hmm. um, which has been, you know, here for nearly or over 100 years, Mm -hmm. playing in that concert hall, and it's nothing compares to hearing live music Mm, in there. That's great. Taj Bates recommends the only in L.A. experiences, sites, and places to eat that she highlights in the YOLO Guide to Los Angeles and Southern California. And while the Getty Center and Villa are among the attractions that expect to remain closed at least into December, we thought it would be good medicine to revisit the optimistic spirit of Southern California for when we get back to traveling and seeing the sights again. Allison's listening in to Travel with Rick Steves from Spokane, Washington. Hi, Allison. Oh, hi, Rick. Hi, Taj. Hey, I'm taking my first trip to L.A. with my husband and our 20-year-old son soon, and we are art lovers and museum lovers, and we have a one-day plan for the Getty. And I'm wondering if you think that's a two-hour or a four-hour or longer kind of experience. Um, and also, since we are food travelers and love, don't want to waste a meal, love to, we're happy to spend money on good food, is there a great spot at the Getty, or do we want to go out to some other neighborhood nearby? That is a great question. First of all, welcome to L.A. when you get here. You're going to love it. And the Getty is a fantastic museum to go to. And it can be as many hours as you like because there's both the art and then there's great scenery from the Getty. You can see, you know, L.A. and the mountains and it's a beautiful place. And in terms of dining, the Getty actually has a fine dining restaurant on site that you might enjoy. I mean, it gets great reviews. So it's a really good place to eat. And then if you don't want to do the fine dining experience, you can get wine and cheese. You can get other types of food and just like, you know, sit out on the lawn or near the garden and just look out at L.A. and have a really great time at the Getty. I read in your book, Taj, that the Getty actually has sort of a 
classy wine and cheese takeout picnic so you can actually enjoy the garden and, and have a less expensive but quality meal out there. Exactly, exactly. And the interesting thing, something that you and your family might like is there's the Getty Center, which is probably what you're thinking about, which is big and beautiful and on a hill. And then there's the Getty Villa, which is a couple of miles north of there. And um, the Getty Villa specializes in classical art, like, you know, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, etc. And it's actually built kind of like a replication of a villa of ancient Rome. So it's a very lovely place. And that's actually a really lovely place to have wine and cheese and enjoy the views. And the good thing is you can actually get into both of the museums are free, but you pay for parking. So one parking pass can get you into both Mm. on the same day. So you can kind of kill two birds with one stone if you're really into art like that. Awesome. Thank you. And don't miss the architecture when you're at the Getty Museum. It's such a beautiful Mm -hmm. harmony of of just world-class art and architecture. I just thought they did a great job of presenting it. Uh, It's a delightful experience to go to that Getty Museum. Agreed. All right. Allison, thanks for your call. Thank you. And Suzanne's calling in from all the way over in Anaheim, California. (laughs) Suzanne, what (laughs) what are your thoughts on Los Angeles that you'd like to share? Well, I love to do day trips to L.A. I used to live in the Inland Empire, so it was a little bit more of a trek. And now I'm only, I'm only about 30 miles from all of the fun. But I still find that hopping on a train and taking public transit is the best way to get around L.A. because I hate traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a, tr- have a little bit of trouble with convincing my friends that it's a perfectly safe thing to do. That's interesting because people don't think of public transit when they think about L.A., but you apparently find it works just fine, especially when you factor in the traffic jams you're avoiding. You know, the reality is I went to Europe and fell in love with Europe and the fact that you could get anywhere on public transit, and I went, you know, why can't I do that in L.A.? And then I discovered I can. (laughs) It's probably the case in a lot of cities in the United States. It's just we don't think of it very seriously. and. It's efficient, and it's really a lot of fun. I mean, you know, on one given day, I'll, I'll hop on the train with or without a plan. The only thing I need to know is when is the second to the last train leaving, because I right. always want to plan for missing that second to the last train. When is the second to the last train leaving for home, and how long is it going to take me to get from where I'm at back to Union Station, which is the train station to get me back, when back I was, to home? Suzanne, I was at Union Station recently, and it, it was such an evocative, beautiful station. It, it, I, I, was, right? I found myself thinking, why don't I just hop on a train in Seattle just so I can go to Union Station? Uh, it's just a great, great uh, welcome to the city, and it's actually in a good neighborhood, isn't it, for, as a springboard for sightseeing? Mm-hmm. It, really, it really is. Little Tokyo is right there. Chinatown is right there. And you can pop off on Red Line, Purple Line into different parts in L.A. The Red Line will take you right to Hollywood. So it'll take you right to Universal Studios. And you'll spend more on parking in L.A., yeah. plus the headache, than you'll spend on transportation using public transit. All right. Hey, Suzanne, thanks for your call. Mm-hmm. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Taj Bates about her book, The YOLO Guide to Los Angeles. Uh, in your book, you call L.A. the creative cuisine capital of the world. How do you back that up? What is so creative about cuisine in L.A.? You know, the interesting thing is a lot of dishes that are just normal American dishes started here in L.A., and I was surprised by how many there were. Like the cheeseburger started by accident here in L.A., the whole smoothie craze, et cetera. But mm-hmm. one of the most interesting things to me that really has gone global um, recently is the whole idea of a gourmet food truck. This really didn't happen until around 2008, 2009, when the recession was happening. And so people were getting tighter with their pocketbooks. They weren't really wanting to go to 
fine dining restaurants. And then you had chefs who couldn't really get funding for a restaurant, so they started a food truck. Food trucks have been a thing in L.A. for about 100 years, going from a horse-drawn carriage to a food truck in the Mexican-American community. So they took that idea and, you know, made them brighter food trucks, you know, had fine dining cuisine or like elevated cuisine, and then used the power of social media to get their message out of like, here's where we're going to be. And there's such a diversity of food you can try in the different food trucks here in L.A. And that idea has spread around the country and around the world. What do they call them? Food truck rallies or something? Gathering together of food trucks. Uh, Mm -hmm. Describe that a little bit. I believe for people who are coming to L.A. and want to try a food truck, the best way to do so is to go to a rally. So that's they happen, you know, pretty much almost every day of the week. And in my travel guide, I tell you, like, on this day, go here on Mm -hmm. that day, go there. I mean, it's just basically a gathering of food trucks. So you let's say you're traveling with other people. You all can try different things and no one's, you know, wedded to one particular type of cuisine. I think it's a great way to get a taste test of our gourmet food trucks. And from reading your book, you're a fan of California-style pizza. What's so special about California-style pizza? California-style pizza really took flight at Spago, which Spago made a huge impact on dining around the world. It, it First of all, it introduced the idea of fine or casual fine dining, so you could have really great Hulk cuisine food and not be dressed up and shishu-fufu. And at the same time, Spago also introduced the idea of putting all kinds of creative ingredients on pizzas, which was Hmm. not a thing before the 80s. (laughs) And the interesting thing is the same pizza chef that Wolfgang Puck brought in to, like, give birth to hundreds of gourmet pizza recipes, he's the same guy who was stolen by two other guys who gave birth to California Pizza Kitchen. I I don't want to finish our conversation on Los Angeles without talking about the zany and the weird, because when I think about Los Angeles, <laughs> I think about a lot of eccentric characters that just seem to be enjoying life in a way that mm-hmm. um, I find very creative. Where would you mm-hmm, go for mm-hmm. zany and weird, and what would you see? Definitely hands-on. You would go to Venice Boardwalk. Earlier you asked me about places I wouldn't really go to before writing this book. I would only go to Venice Boardwalk if people were visiting. Now I love it, because I now understand that Venice Boardwalk is like really unique in terms of it's one of the only places in the world where you can be whoever you want to be. <laughs> you can be as crazy, zany, weird, and no one says a thing. It is the zaniest and weirdest place in all of L.A., but it's also a place that's inspired lots of actors, lots of artists for like over 100 years. And there's lots of amazing mural art in Venice, lots of, you know, right. street performers. It's a great place to go. And also, if you wanted to kind of really feel like a local, you could rent skateboards or a bike, couldn't you? Yes, it has a lovely bike path. And Venice actually has a beautiful beach, so it, you can have a great day just in Venice alone. Can, can just a tourist work out at the Muscle Beach Gym? You can. I, the last time I checked, it was like $10 day pass. So, right. yeah, you totally can. There you go. Wow, you could be part of the scene on Venice Beach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Taj Bates, and her book is The Yolo Guide to Los Angeles. Taj, you mentioned uh, there's a lot of great murals in Venice, and uh, mm-hmm. I know you can take walking tours to look at murals with a local tour guide. What are a couple of the unforgettable and creative tours that you might want to take while you're in Los Angeles? There's a really good walking tour of the murals in downtown L.A. So downtown L.A. has an arts district, and there's a, a lot of murals in that area. You can actually take a mural tour with a muralist, so someone who actually is involved in the community and mm. knows what they're talking about. And then a self-guided walking tour. Again, Venice is a really great place to to go on your own kind of like walking tour and, and just check out murals both along the boardwalk and like on streets surrounding mm 
off of the boardwalk as well. Taj Bates, thank you so much for uh, sharing your hometown in a very cleverly written and fun and practical book to Los Angeles. Thank you. Nobody has a Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan-Wilner, and Kazmura Hall at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Special thanks to our colleagues at the Radio Foundation in New York and NPR West in Culver City, California for their help this week. We had editing help this week from Sarah McCormick. We look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's a greatest hit sweep through art history via the finest paintings, sculpture, and architecture ever. It's all in Europe's top 100 masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.